0: 18 verses of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born. "...not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, "'This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for He existed before me. For of His fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace.'" For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's bow our heads together and pray before we begin our study. Our Father, we are unable to understand or comprehend or rightly assess any spiritual truth apart from the ministry of Your Spirit. It is that that we ask for today. We pray not only that You would give us understanding, but that you would help us to think rightly about your word and about the things which are contained in it. We must bow our knees before the revelation of you, our God, and we must depend upon you for illumination in it. So we ask that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that your word would be our guide, and that your glory would be our consuming passion and concern. We commit this time. We pray that you would bless our time here together. In Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen you probably guessed by now from the bulletin and from our reading that the Gospel of John is going to be the next book that we begin looking at as a congregation. We did Jonah and now John, and it's my goal to do all of the books that begin with J-O. So we'll do Joel, and I can't wait for Job. But we're going to do the Gospel of John for a number of different reasons. Um, One of them is, and, and today what we're going to do is go through all of the sort of the background information to the Gospel. And we do this whenever we start a book here, we always take one Sunday and we cover some of the themes, who wrote it, when was it written, why was it written, what date was it written, what is contained in the book, what makes the book unique, what can we kind of look forward to as we go through and study this book over the course of the next while. And the reason that we do this, and I understand it's not the most interesting material, who wrote it and when it was written and all of that, but it is necessary material. And I always would prefer to take a passage of Scripture and begin with verse such and such and go to verse so and so and just give an exposition of it. But it's always necessary for us to lay a bit of groundwork before we begin any study in-depth of a book of the Bible. So that's what we're doing today. I'm just introducing the book of John today. And uh, I think that you will find the the gospel itself is going to be very beneficial to you. Why did I choose the book of John? I could have chosen any one of 65 other books, right? Right? except for Jonah, so maybe 64 other books. Why the book of John? The book of John has been a book that I have wanted to preach through ever since I started preaching. So anytime we have ever arrived at what book to do next, John has always been on the short list. In fact, it was when we started the book of Acts a number of years ago, it was a, a showdown between Acts and John. And I chose Acts for certain reasons, and now we're going to look at the book of John. I love the book of John. It is my favorite gospel. And it has been one that ever since I began preaching, I've wanted to study the book. And as a church, we've gone through a lot of Paul's epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, uh, Ephesians, not too long ago, Philippians. For two years, we spent studying Paul and his missionary journeys and his life and everything that he did in his ministry. And so recently, when somebody asked me, what book are you doing next after Jonah? And I told them, the book of John. They expressed the sentiment of my own heart when they said... I'm glad to hear that because we've had so much Paul recently. I feel it's time for a little bit of Jesus. And I concur with that. I kind of feel the same way. We're doing Romans in adult Sunday school class, and I have wanted to do John, and I think that as a body now we're at a point where I think John is going to be very profitable for us. So as a congregation, we're going to dive into this gospel. But I will warn you, some of you are going to find in the gospel of John more than just a bit of Jesus. Jesus. Some of you are going to find the Jesus in the Gospel of John to be somebody that you have never encountered before in your life. You are going to hear Jesus say things in the book of John that are just going to stop your breathing, so to speak. You're going to find yourself caught up a little bit short as you say to yourself, My Savior said that. My Savior meant that. That is my Savior. This is the person He is. You're going to get... More than just a little bit of Jesus in the Gospel of John. You're going to get a whole lot of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, John is, of all the Gospels, John is my favorite. And I think that John is my favorite for this reason. John is a Gospel that is, on the one hand and at the same time, so profoundly simple. It is so direct, it is so straightforward. When a new believer comes to me and says, what should I begin reading in my Bible? I always say, the Gospel of John. Begin in the Gospel of John. Read the Gospel of John five or six times. And then move on to the rest of the New Testament. But begin with the Gospel of John. Get familiar with John's Gospel. And then, of course, read all the other Gospels, but that's where you start. Why? Because the Gospel of John and how he describes things and what he says in there is so simple that a babe in Christ can understand it. And yet, at the same time, it is so profoundly deep that no matter how much time you spend studying the Gospel of John, you are never going to walk away from the Gospel of John saying, I've nailed it. i got a handle on this. There's nothing here that is new to me. There's nothing here that stretches my mind. You are going to find in almost every chapter in the Gospel of John that there are things there that are so deep, so sweeping, so infinite, so profound, so mysterious, that you and I are going to walk away from them saying, I understand what he's saying, but I don't understand what he's saying. You get the difference? I can understand what he's saying, but I don't understand what he's saying. And that's going to be in every, almost every chapter of the Gospel of John. Didn't you get that in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. He was both with God and He was God. And the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John leave one wondering what other type of massive theology is there for us to cover? It's just amazing. So it is at the same time profoundly simple and so deep and so rich that the most intellectual, the most mature, and the most knowledgeable believer here is going to find your soul and your heart and your spirit and your intellect stretched beyond where it is right now, because there are going to be times when you simply say, Jim, how is that possible? And I'm just going to simply say, I don't know, but that's what it says. And we just have to accept that, because that is what has been given to us by revelation from God. So probably the best place to start would be to compare John with the other Gospels, and that is the other synoptics. Have you heard the term synoptic gospel? And I want to get a feel for this. How many of you have heard the term synoptic gospels? Okay, synoptic Gospels does not refer to any of the quote-unquote lost Gospels as if they were ever part of our Bible to begin with, namely the Gospel of Peter and Thomas and Jude and all of the ones that make the headlines every Easter season or resurrection season trying to deny the deity of Christ and the resurrection, things like that. Those are not synoptics. Those are Gnostics. Don't get the two confused. Synoptic Gospels refers to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels of your New Testament. John is not considered a synoptic Gospel. The synoptics are the first three. Synoptic comes from the combination of two words, syn, not S-I-N, but S-Y-N, meaning same, as in synonym, to mean the same thing, and optic, meaning to see, as in optics. So synoptic means to see the same. And if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do indeed see the same material from much the same perspective. In other words, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, And it's like three reporters who are reporting events that happened in the life of a historical character, each one emphasizing different elements and different aspects of that life from a slightly different perspective, but really they all see it the same way. Those are the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Then there's John. John is so entirely different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that people question whether it even belongs in the New Testament. Now, genuine Christians don't question that, but critics do. Because it is so radically different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And probably the best way to get a handle on just how different it is is for me to go over some of the differences between them. So listen to this. There are things that are in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are not recorded in John. John gives us a higher proportion of narrative, or sorry, to, of dialogue to narrative than do the other Gospels. You read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find Jesus went here, and Jesus did this, and he counted this person, and then he said this to such and such. And he went here, and he did this, and this happened, and this person said this, and then Jesus said that. You get this higher percentage of narrative to dialogue. John is the opposite. In John, you get chapters of dialogue. John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all dialogue. John chapter 8, John chapter 10, John chapter 6, John chapter 5, John chapter 3, John chapter 4, all dialogue with very little narrative. So it's, it's different in that way. There are things that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that John doesn't even mention. For instance, John doesn't record any narrative parables. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, lots of parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this, and the kingdom of heaven is like that, and a certain man went to a certain city, and a landowner did this. You get the parables. None of that in John. No parables in John. There's no eschatological discourses. You say Eschato- who? eschatological Eschatological. Eschatological meaning concerning the end times. Remember Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25? Tell us what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Followed by two chapters of an eschatological discourse. That is a discourse dealing with the events at the end of the age, at the end of time, prior to and concerning the coming of Jesus. You don't get that in the Gospel of John. Which, by the way, I find ironic from the same author that brought us the book of Revelation. Isn't that interesting? Interesting. But the gospel doesn't contain any eschatological discourses. There are in John no accounts of exorcisms or healings of lepers, which are common in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's no list of the twelve apostles in the gospel of John, even though John mentions a multitude of the apostles on different occasions, on a lot of different occasions. There's no mention of the institution of the Lord's Supper in John. And that's ironic since John 13 gives us, of all the gospels, the most detailed account of what happened the night before our Lord is crucified. John spends more time describing the Last Supper than do Matthew, Mark, and Luke almost combined, and yet he doesn't mention the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is kind of interesting. There's no record of the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of John. There's no mention of the baptism of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus, the transfiguration of Jesus, Jesus' agony in Gethsemane, or the ascension of Jesus. Isn't that wild? You ever notice that? John doesn't mention any of those things. And those are the things that we typically associate with gospel stories or gospel passages. But then John does contain or relate, describe, a whole host of things that the other gospel writers don't mention. For instance, 90% of the material in the gospel of John is unique only to the gospel of John and is not mentioned by Matthew, Mark, or Luke, including the pre-existence and the incarnation of Christ, which we, I just read to you in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, typically called the prologue of John's gospel. John mentions the early ministry of Jesus in Judea and Samaria in chapters 2 and 3. It's John who tells us about Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus and his discourse on the new birth in chapter 3. It's John who records that Jesus's Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well in chapter 4. And even the miracles that John records are unique to the Gospel of John. He doesn't relate the ones that the previous Gospels had, had mentioned. For instance, it's in John that we find out what the first miracle of Jesus was. What was it? turning water into wine, John chapter 2. It is in John that we have the healing of the lame man in chapter 5, the healing of the blind man in chapter 9, and the resurrection of Lazarus in chapter 11. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record any of those miracles. And then John records some of Jesus' most well-known discourses, including the bread of life discourse in chapter 6, the living water discourse in chapter 7, the good shepherd discourse in chapter 10, His upper room discourse with the disciples in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. And Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17. All of those discourses not mentioned and not given in detail by any of the gospel writers. So 90% of John's material is unique to John. Not only that, but the post-resurrection miracle of the catching of the fish is recorded in John. Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet in John chapter 13 is recorded. And the recommission of Peter and Jesus' prediction of Peter's martyrdom are recorded by John. And if it weren't for John, we wouldn't have any idea about any of those things. Can you imagine how deficient our knowledge of the life and ministry and person of our Lord would be if it were not for the Gospel of John? I am so thankful that John, by inspiration of the Spirit of God, took up pen and wrote this Gospel. But now you say, but Jim... You have talked about John being the author of the Gospel, and yet, as I read the Gospel of John, there's no mention of John anywhere in the Gospel. You notice that? Do you notice as you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that none of the Gospels name their authors? In fact, the title at the top of your page, the Gospel according to John, was not in John's original manuscript. John's manuscript began with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The title, The Gospel According to John, was added years later. Now this, I'll give this to you no extra charge, but this will be fascinating to you. Here's how the titles to our Gospels came to be added. In the early church, it used to be prior to the advent of Christianity, that things were written on scrolls. So anytime you wanted to read something, you had to unroll the scroll and roll the scroll back up. Shortly after the advent of Christianity in the first century... Christians began to use what was called a codex, or codices, plural, a codex. A codex is the equivalent of a book. So what people began to do in the first century is they would take a slab of wood about the size of a book, and they would put two slabs of wood together, and in between they would put a bunch of papyrus, sheets of papyrus that they would write out out the writings on. Because in the arid, dry climate of the Middle East, rolling and unrolling scrolls all the time for reading every Sunday became very arduous, and it began to destroy and break down the scrolls rather quickly. So they said, how can we come up with a way to preserve the writings together? So they invented what was called a codex. Later on, about 200 years later in Egypt, the codexes became used for other books in the libraries of Alexandria, etc. But it was likely the Christians who first came up with and used widely a codex. So Christians began to circulate. We've discovered these today. Codex, A codex of, for instance, the first four Gospels, where they would bind together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together in a codex. And they would also bind together Paul's epistles in a separate codex. And they began to circulate these and copy them widely. Well, when you bind together Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you may not necessarily always bind them in the same order together inside your codex, between your two wooden tablets. And so they began to put titles at the top of each of the Gospels, the Gospel According to Matthew. Then you would flip through there, you'd get to the end of Matthew, you'd see the Gospel according to Mark. And that's how the titles became added in order to differentiate or distinguish one of the inspired Gospels from another of the inspired Gospels. Now, as I mentioned, you notice as you read through the Gospels that you never see the Gospel according to John, and you never see John name himself, or Matthew, or Mark, or Luke. And this is curious to me, because if you read the Gospel according to Judas, or Peter, or Mary, or Thomas, all of the spurious Gospels which were circulated over a hundred years after the actual Gospels, they named the authors. And the Christians recognized them as forgeries. And the people who forged those Gospels went to great lengths to claim for themselves apostolic authorship. But the Christians never accepted them. The Christians never endorsed them or circulated them or recognized them as inspired writings. But there was never any doubt among believers that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were inspired Gospels. So how do we know that John wrote the Gospel of John? Now, this is going to fascinate you almost as much as the codices and all of the other stuff that I just gave you about spurious gospels and pseudepigrapha and all that other good stuff. So, please stay awake. Let me give to you the reasoning by which we distinguish John or identify John as the author of this gospel. Turn in your Bibles to the back of the book of John, chapter 21. John never does mention himself by name anywhere in this gospel. Even when he's talking about the apostles and sometimes all of them together, John never speaks of himself in the third person. Instead, there is somebody in this gospel called the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is the author of this gospel. So look at the end of chapter 21. This is after Jesus has predicted Peter's martyrdom. Beginning in verse 20, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. So obviously Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved are not the same person. Peter turned around and he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper, and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, that is the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? This is the disciple, not Peter, but the disciple whom Jesus loved. Look at verse 24. This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So who is the author of the Gospel of John? It is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now keep your finger here, and I mean that because we're going to be back to chapter 21, and turn back to chapter 13 for just a moment. John chapter 13. This is at the Last Supper. In verse 23, there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his twelve disciples, whom Jesus loved. So whoever this person is who is the disciple whom Jesus loves, the author of this Gospel, was one of the twelve who was with Jesus at the Last Supper, because the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell us that only the twelve were there. There was nobody else there. So whoever the disciple whom Jesus loves is, it refers to one of the twelve. Now, it's obviously not Judas, because the disciple whom Jesus loved is there after the resurrection. And it's obviously not Peter, since Peter says to the disciple whom Jesus loves something in John chapter 21, Now flip back to chapter 21, and we'll begin to narrow it down a little bit further. Beginning of chapter 21, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. So this is after the resurrection, at the Sea of Tiberias, he manifested himself in this way. Verse 2, Simon Peter, and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. So how many disciples are there? There's seven. Peter, Nathanael, Thomas, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, two brothers, James and John. John, I'm alleging, is the author of the book. And then two other disciples that are not named. So you have seven total. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved, oh, sorry, go, keep going, keep reading. See Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? You do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So the disciple whom Jesus loved is one of these seven. It's not Peter... By implication, it is also not Nathaniel or Thomas, because the disciple whom Jesus loved is distinguished from all three of those who were named. This is an unnamed disciple, so that narrows it down to only four possibilities. These two unnamed disciples, or one of the two sons of Zebedee. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's no mention of John anywhere in the Gospel of John. Now, follow me here. No mention of John anywhere in the Gospel of John, yet he was one of the three most prominent disciples. And he occurs everywhere else in all of the Synoptic Gospels, mentioned over 20 times. It is unthinkable that any disciple other than John would write a gospel and talk about Peter and James and the sons of Zebedee and yet not mention John by name. We rule out the other two unnamed disciples because this seems to be somebody who is named, but in a very secretive or mysterious way. He is called rather the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's not one of the three that's named. It's not one of the two unnamed disciples because it's unthinkable that any of the other disciples would write a gospel and not mention John. It is one of the two sons of Zebedee, either James or John. It can't be James because Acts chapter 12 says that he was martyred in the early church much too early to have written this gospel. That leaves only one candidate. whom? John, the son of Zebedee, the son of Thunder. The Apostle John, he is the author of the Gospel. That's the internal evidence from the book of John itself. Now, there's also external evidence outside the New Testament, which points to John as the author. There was a man named Irenaeus who lived in 130 to 200 A.D. Irenaeus, writing in a book called Against Heresies, wrote this. Afterwards, and by that Irenaeus is talking about after the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written. Afterwards, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. They say, but Jim, that was written probably about the middle of the second century from a guy that I've never even heard of, Irenaeus. Who's Irenaeus? Irenaeus was a disciple or a student of a man named Polycarp. You know, i never heard of Polycarp either. Polycarp was a direct disciple of John, the apostle. So Irenaeus testified early in the history of the church that John was the one who wrote this fourth gospel. Theophilus of Antioch writes this, The holy writings teach us, and all the spirit-bearing men, that is, all the men inspired by the Spirit, one of whom, John, says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So another person who lived the same time as Irenaeus mentions that John, the one who leaned upon the breast of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, wrote, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The uniform testimony of church history Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, Dionysius of Alexandria, Eusebius, Irenaeus, the, Theophilus, uh, yeah, Theophilus of Antioch, all uniform testimony that the author of the fourth gospel is the Apostle John. And no manuscript has ever been discovered that attributes the authorship of this gospel to anybody other than John. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now we need to talk about, we talk about authorship. Now let's talk about dating. And I don't mean boys and girls going out with each other. I mean, the dating of this gospel. When was this gospel written? And this is important because, listen, critics of the New Testament will always say the gospel of John wasn't written in the first century. Probably written middle of the second century, late second century, maybe on even into the third century. And they like to push that back in order to say the early church did not believe in the divinity or the deity of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe Christ was God. The apostles didn't believe that Christ was God. And the only place you get that in the Testament is from the Gospel of John. And so the Gospel of John was written after the church had time to kind of come up with this myth of a risen deity or a God-man, and that this was something that developed after the time of the apostles. And then they wrote a gospel to sort of canonize it or codify it into the church as accepted doctrine. But it's never something that the disciples ever believed or the early church ever believed. So they say... John was written after the 2nd century or in the middle of the 2nd century sometimes. You get this all the time when, uh, at your time, the, the idea that the early church didn't believe in the deity of Christ. You say if you point to the Gospel of John, you say, well, there's proof that the disciples did believe the deity of Christ. And then they say, yeah, but John didn't write the Gospel of John. How do you know that? Because he didn't believe the deity of Christ. What kind of circular reasoning is that? That doesn't make any sense at all. So when was the Gospel of John written? Most conservative commentators, and if you have a MacArthur study Bible or any other kind of study Bible sitting in your lap, you're probably going to read 80s or 90s, late first century, sometime before the death of of, uh, John the Apostle, which occurred sometime after 94 A.D., the longest living apostle, lived longer than any of the other apostles, the only apostle that wasn't martyred for his faith. You're probably going to read that it was written in the 80s or the 90s. There is a growing consensus among conservative scholars that the Gospel of John was not written late 1st century, but much earlier 1st century, actually prior to 70 A.D. Now, there's a reason why I would say that. And let me give you a little bit of evidence as to why, and I personally take this position, that John was written before 70 A.D. And here's why. If you're a student of the New Testament, then you know that there was something significant that happened In 70 A.D. in Jerusalem. Do you remember what it was? In 70 A.D. the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem. And they leveled Herod's temple. They ransacked the city and made it an utter ruin. And it was in response to insurrections that the Jews had been uh, fostering in the first century, and this constant sort of usurping of power and not bowing to Caesar. Finally, Titus, the Roman general, who later became an emperor, came in and just ransacked the city and destroyed it, just wiped them out entirely. That completely altered the face of Judaism, completely altered the face of the whole New Testament landscape. It was the most significant event, and I mean from a secular perspective, just a secular historical perspective, the most significant event of the first century as far as a Jew was concerned or as far as an author was concerned, staggering in its implications. Can you imagine reading a book, and I want to put this in perspective. Imagine that you're reading a book about New York City, maybe a tourist guide or a history of New York City or a a history of the skyline of New York City or something like that. And you get to the end of the book and you say to yourself, there's no mention of 9-11 here. There's no mention of of, uh, hijackers hijacking planes and flying them into the World Trade Center and 3,000 people dying. There's no mention of that anywhere in this book. What would you conclude about that book? you would conclude that it was written before 9-11. There is no mention in any book of the New Testament of the events that happened in 70 A.D. If we were to expect any gospel writer to mention 70 A.D., the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, we would expect it from John, and here's why. Because in John chapter 1, John says, He who created the world came into the world, and his own did not receive him. He came to his own people... He came to His own creation as the Good Shepherd, as the Messiah, as the King, as the Anointed One, as the Christ. He came into His own, and His own rejected Him. Now, there are ramifications or implications of that rejection, and one of them is that the temple was destroyed and the nation was destroyed in 70 A.D. That was punishment. And there are hints of this coming destruction of the temple in the Gospel of John, but no mention of it. Why does John not mention it? You would expect it in the Gospel of John... For John to at least allude to it, imply it, or to mention it in passing as if to say, this is the result of the nation's rejection of their Messiah. He was trying to show all the way through the gospel how the nation had rejected him. John chapter 1, he says, he came into his own and his own did not receive him. And the rest of the gospel is about that. Their rejection, the religious leaders' rejection, the authorities' rejection, the people's rejection, even rejection by some of those who walked closely with him and followed him for a period of time. He was rejected by everyone. You would expect John to mention the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Turn to John chapter 11. Let me show you another sort of interesting observation. John chapter 11. And this happens after the resurrection of Lazarus. Verse 45 says, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what Jesus had done in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus had done. Deads and tattletales, running to the Pharisees, saying, hey, Jesus raised Lazarus. And everybody is believing on it." Look at verse 47. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? In other words, why are we not doing something? What are we doing? This man's performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Everyone will accept him as king. Everyone will bow before Him as Messiah. We have to do something or the crowds. are People are flocking after Him. And if we don't stop Him, everybody's going to believe on Him. Look what he says next. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. In other words, they were saying, if we don't stop Jesus, the Romans are going to come in and they are going to destroy us if everybody believes on this man. If this were written after 70 A.D., wouldn't you expect John to say, Oh, well, by the way, this did happen because even though they did take steps to stop Jesus, they killed him, the Romans still came in and destroyed their city. Yet there's no mention of it. Turn back to John chapter 5, one last observation. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. Now there is, in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. See, that I think is beautiful. Did you catch that? Is it? No, I just got there. I'm just now reading over it. Now there is, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool. If this were written after 70 A.D., there was no longer a sheep gate. There was no longer a pool having five porticos. And yet John speaks in the present tense, saying, there is, in Jerusalem, a pool by the sheep gate, having, present tense, by porticos. Why is the present tense significant? Because the rest of the passage is in the past tense. And yet John speaks of something in Jerusalem as if it was there. If he were writing after 70 A.D., John would have had to have said to be accurate, there was, in Jerusalem, a pool by what was the sheep gate, and it had by porticos. But he doesn't do that. Why not? See, friends, there are... There are clues in the Gospel of John or things from the early church which indicate that this gospel was not written after 70 A.D. I have a hard time pushing it back to that. Some people would suggest it was written after 70 A.D., but so long after 70 A.D. that the events of 70 A.D. didn't matter to anybody anymore. I guess that could be, and I would accept that if you really wanted to hammer it down the 80s or 90s. It's still the Apostle John, but I think that a good case can be made that this was written Not just prior to 70 A.D., but some scholars are saying it was contemporaneous with Paul's epistles. so that means mid-50s, late-50s, sometime in the 60s. It's an early gospel. Don't ever buy the lie when somebody says the gospels were written generations after the events that transpired. It's not true. They were written within two decades of the transpiration of these events. They wrote them early, not late. Now, what is the purpose of the Gospel of John? Why was the book written? I want you to turn one last time. I'm going to ask you to turn back to the end of the book of John, chapter 20. And we'll read John's own purpose statement. John, chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs did Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written, here's the purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. You say, why did John record the things that he did? Did he sit down with Matthew, Mark, and Luke and say, okay, Matthew covers this, so I've got to come up with something new. Oh yeah, here's something new. No, he didn't do that at all. John had a theological point in mind and an evangelistic purpose in mind. He sat down to write his gospel and he selected the material from the life of Jesus. He selected events from the life of Jesus that would uniquely demonstrate him to be not just the Son of God, But God, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, incarnated in human flesh, the Word becoming flesh and living here with us, God in human flesh, in all of His glory, in all of His grace, in all of His truth, the exact representation of the Godhead in manhood, in human flesh, living here physically walking with us. John selected all of those things from an evangelistic perspective with a theological point in mind in order to demonstrate that this Jesus of Nazareth was not just another ordinary human being, but that He was the Son of God. And not just the Son of God, but God the Son. And not just God the Son, but He who existed before Abraham, before the creation of the world, before the existence of anything else, in perfect unity with the Father... And that this Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to at all costs, but instead he laid aside his glory and he took upon himself the form of a servant, and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and washed his disciples' feet, and then he gave his life on a cross, in place of all those whom the Father had given to Him, so that He might raise them all up on the last day. That is the Jesus of the Gospel of John. And that in believing that, you might have life, eternal life, in His name. We are going to see in the Gospel of John, not just Jesus, but we're going to see the Son of God in all of His glory, full of grace and full of truth. That's the Jesus that we're going to behold. And we will begin that journey next week with verse 1 of the Gospel of John. Let's bow together. Our Father, we do want to know more of this Jesus. this Jesus who died for us, who is the bread of life, the living water, who is the good shepherd, who is the door, who is the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you for him, and we look forward to our study in the pages of this book. We thank you that in your providence and by your sovereignty that you have given to us through the Apostle John, a record of the events in the life of the Lord Jesus, which is so unique and so different. We thank you for what it contains, and we thank you in advance for what you're going to do in our hearts as we get a glimpse of this Jesus full of grace and full of truth. We ask that we might be changed by these things, forever altered, for your sake, the advance of your word and your kingdom, in Jesus' name.